Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for your support on Patreon, Rebecca Eager. Rebecca Eager was a lady-in-waiting to Elizabeth Stewart, the Electress Palatine, or the Winter Queen. Alongside the Winter Queen, Rebecca Eager prayed fervently for the intervention of Sweden to save the Palatine family from ruin, and her prayers were answered. This, of course, is all a lie, but if you would like me to lie about you, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. More on that later, but for now, enjoy episode 47 of the 30 Years' War. Hello and welcome history friends, patrons all to the 30 Years War. So it is great to be back after, well, not really being around last week because I had the worst cold I've had in years. I pretty much never get sick, but the sickness was real in the last week. I was utterly miserable and I also sounded disgusting. So when I say I did you a favour by not recording, trust me, I did you and the audio gods plenty of favours by staying quiet. It does mean we're slightly behind, but the good news is I'll be podcasting every week. The last episode I'll release in 2021 will be on the 20th of December, and then we'll return on the 10th of January. So basically we're taking two weeks off for Christmas and New Year's. The usual, this is pretty much what I do every time, and it seems to work fairly well. But up until then, there'll be three more episodes to go. So I'm trying to kind of make up for my absence and then all the faffing about with Michael the Third before then. Speaking of which, I've got some good feedback from you guys. You say that Michael the Third sounds a lot better than Michael the Second, and I have to agree with you. I'm also very happy with Rode NT USB. So thanks for that, Rode. Great company. And thanks to you for listening to this episode. Let's pick up where we left off last time. And last time we brought the related conflicts up to date with the German narrative. We linked several threads together in the process. La Rochelle, the Mantuan War, and the Dutch triumphs against Spain all featured prominently. We investigated how these developments affected the course of the German War, which Wallenstein and Count Tilly were helping to bring to a close. The conclusion of the war with Denmark in the Peace of Lübeck in June 1629 was a significant step towards peace. For the first time in a decade, there were no active armies opposed to the emperor in the empire. Frederick V's schemes notwithstanding, these would not bear fruit until the arrival of the King of Sweden, which itself wouldn't materialise 
until some point in 1630. For now then, all eyes were on what the Emperor would do next, and what Wallenstein, his personal instrument, would do in his name. The Edict of Restitution and the unpopularity of Wallenstein's enormous military presence were two issues which the German princes and electors were determined to leverage against their Emperor. Emperor Ferdinand had his own list of demands to present. These included the confirmation of his son, Ferdinand III, as heir for the imperial title, and a declaration of war on the Dutch Republic by all the German potentates to support the Spanish. Weighed against one another, the concerns and demands of both sides indicated that 1630 was going to be a very busy year, and all would have to be negotiated at Regensburg. Already though, with the Protestant electors in Saxony and Brandenburg refusing to send representatives, it was apparent that reaching some form of agreeable compromise would be an uphill battle for the Emperor. In many respects, the Regensburg meeting is kind of the calm before the storm. So let's investigate it, as I now take you all to mid-1630. From July to September 1630, some of the most important actors in Europe gathered at the town of Regensburg for an imperial diet and a congress. Conspicuous in their absence were the two Protestant electors, Saxony and Brandenburg. Both had already begun to drift away from the Emperor's orbit, thanks in large part to the ill-advised Edict of Restitution, which had so alienated them the previous year. The presence of representatives from France and Spain at the Congress confirmed its importance though, as did the pace of events outside of its confines. Only a few days after opening, the King of Sweden landed in Pomerania, initiating a journey which would take him to the heights of prestige and fame, as he wrested the peace which the Emperor Ferdinand had sought right out of his hands. But we're not going to talk about Sweden just yet. Because, in the case of those assembled at Regensburg, they didn't seem to be thinking too much about Sweden. They were far more preoccupied with the war that was then going on, rather than the wars to come in the future. In April 1630, Emperor Ferdinand had outlined his proposals for the upcoming conference. These proposals included a desire to extend the Peace of Lübeck with Denmark throughout Germany, and thereby bring an end to all forms of conflict within the Empire. Nobody could object in principle to this aim, since all had felt the pinch of this war which had lumbered forward for over a decade. With no enemies in the field as well, it was hoped that Wallenstein would be dismissed. With the French and Spanish among the 2,000 individuals in attendance at Regensburg, it was also hoped that the war in North Italy could be concluded and the Empire could repair its shattered infrastructure in peace. Having achieved some incredible triumphs, the Emperor was willing to make a certain amount of peace, but his ulterior motives rubbed the electors the wrong way and left him vulnerable to making concessions which he could not afford. In December 1629, Ferdinand had written to his Chancellor in Vienna about organising a compromise peace, urging him to give peace due consideration and reflect reasonably on the current situation in Italy as well as that in Germany and how one might deal with the growing power of the states in the Netherlands and the obstinate intrigues of hostile parties with foreign potentates. I prefer all the more, as I have often indicated, that the Italian differences were settled by amicable compromise, but thereby 
my imperial authority must on all accounts be preserved and receive due recognition and be assured of the implementation at this time. You will direct all negotiations in accordance with this, our intention, and direct the council so that the way is open to the amicable compromise I so eagerly await. As this correspondence indicates, though, Ferdinand was only willing to countenance a lasting peace arrangement on his terms. He had authorised the Edict of Restitution in spring 1629, a few months before writing this letter, which effectively torpedoed the best opportunity the Habsburgs had to bring all corners of the empire together, regardless of religious or political outlook. Ferdinand's stance going into Regensburg was that he would give up neither the Edict of Restitution nor Wallenstein, the Generalissimo, that had granted him his power without a considerable struggle. From the beginning it had been made apparent that Protestant opinion was squarely set against Ferdinand. Taking their time to respond to the Edict and highlight its disastrous implications for their lands and subjects, the Swabian Circle weighed in on the debate in early 1630. The princes of the Swabian Circle, who existed west of Bavaria, had suffered much from the privations of war and from the stipulations of the Edict of Restitution. The practice of Protestant worship in the Circle, which had grown exponentially since 1555, meant that the land alienated from the Catholic Church was, according to the Edict, ripe for the taking. But this was too much for these individuals of the Swabian Circle, who urged the Emperor to reconsider such policies in a letter sent directly to the imperial court in January 1630. We have become anxious that we and other loyalist states are in dire poverty and are facing immediate ruin, and again voice our concern at the destruction and devastation of the entire Roman Empire to your imperial majesty, and humbly beseech your protection, aid and rescue, and meanwhile regard it as advisable to approach you as well, as the foremost loyal council appointed to advise the Empire. It is our diligent view and request that you will not only take to heart sympathetically the regrettable condition of ourselves and other loyal estates of the Empire, but also, but from duty to the Empire as well as for the good of His Imperial Majesty and His Dynasty, and for the preservation of the entire Roman Empire, to remind and assist with true advice without letting up until not only the insatiable burden of war is recognised, without, and that, the loyal estates together, with their subjects, are being driven into the ground, despite their patience, through no fault of their own, together with all the misery and evil that entails. Moreover, thanks to the imperial edict, they meant the edict of restitution here, we and other evangelical princes and estates are threatened with judicial punishments, the like of which has neither been heard nor used before in the empire and are being de facto deprived of our property that we have held for many years through legal entitlement and inherited from several generations of ancestors. Instead, the directions of the imperial constitution should be followed to the current situation in the empire, and that such religious and church matters should be dealt with according to the usual custom, as equality and justice should apply to them, as well as the 1552 Treaty of Passau and the 1555 Religious Peace, and everything done differently, and care taken, and matters handled according to the constitutional ways and means, so that no one has cause for complaint. But on the contrary, the authorised separation and difficulty of the empire and estates can thereby be removed. 
This Swabian circle formed merely a snapshot of Protestant opinion within the empire. It was also expected that other Protestants would find their own means of protest in the near future if they were not listened to here. And yet, this will probably not surprise you to learn, the emperor was not moved. He would surge forward with the edict and he would present steep demands of his own to those assembled at Regensburg before contemplating compromise himself. The Holy Roman Emperor was the master of Germany, thanks to Wallenstein's triumphs and the lack of any formal opposition within the Empire. Aside from the King of Sweden, who in spring 1630 lurked in the background, no potentate possessed the power to contest what Wallenstein had crafted. In spite of this fact, though, it must be said that the Emperor's triumphs were not built on particularly durable foundations. The application of force through the instrument of Wallenstein had been Ferdinand's trump card, but it came with complications. Resentment among the Catholic electors increased so long as Wallenstein's power and importance grew. Despite Maximilian of Bavaria's own responsibility for Wallenstein's position and the fact that he recommended him to the Empire many times before, by 1630 Maximilian wanted to replace him and Wallenstein's army with that of the Catholic League, and to reassume the leverage he had once held over his emperor. For these reasons, selfish and self-interested though they may appear, Maximilian led the opposition to Wallenstein, and he sponsored the most scandalous rumours about Wallenstein's intentions, working as hard as he could to undermine the Generalissimo's position. By spring 1630 this was easy enough to do, because now that Wallenstein was forced to rely on contributions, taken from the Habsburg hereditary lands, he no longer seemed as useful an asset to Vienna. Furthermore, almost because of his triumphs, Wallenstein had elevated imperial soldiery to such a point that the notion of appointing a successor seemed perfectly possible. It was no longer the case that Wallenstein and Wallenstein alone could solve the imperial crisis. Indeed, thanks to Wallenstein's dominance of the military sphere, Ferdinand faced no crises save for those that he created himself. There was another issue that we touched on briefly, and it was a question that Ferdinand felt compelled to answer out of familial duty. Since 1625, Vienna and Madrid had worked closer together, but due to Ferdinand's preoccupation, first with Frederick V's machinations, and then the King of Denmark, Ferdinand had been unable to contribute much towards the Spanish war effort in the Netherlands. The princes and electors of the empire, having no quarrel with the Dutch, would never have countenanced war with their neighbour and such a valued trading partner. It was thus fortunate for the emperor that Wallenstein was in a position to act as the emperor's instrument rather than as a conduit of German policy. Acting independently of the German princes, Wallenstein had sent soldiers to intervene in the Polish war into the Netherlands and finally towards North Italy during the Mantuan War. He did all this on Ferdinand's instructions and because his force was independent of the German princes, the emperor had not needed the permission of these princes to act. Now, this is not to say Wallenstein had no reservations where any of these conflicts were concerned. As we've seen, he was far more drawn to the prospect of ending the war in Germany and retiring to his considerable duchies in Mecklenburg and Friedland. I have received four different and strict orders from the emperor to lose no time in dispatching soldiers to Italy. Wallenstein had noted in August 1629. And even though I do not think it advisable, I have complied, because His Majesty has commanded it. By 1630, though, 
Spain expected more from the commitment of imperial soldiers to the Mantuan War. What they sought was the official denunciation of the Dutch by the entire Holy Roman Empire and the military intervention of its princes against those rebels who were now being charged with breaking the imperial peace. Certainly a case could be made that the Dutch had directly or indirectly sponsored most schemes against the Habsburgs. Everyone's favourite winter king continued to use the Hague as his base of operations after all. But if you wanted to make that argument, then it was equally true on the other side, because the Spanish had stretched their tentacles into Germany and refused to withdraw. Both the Spanish and the Dutch saw their contribution towards the war in Germany as a way of striking at his foe indirectly. Neither could afford to completely detach themselves from that theatre, especially when there were critical river crossings to guard and winter quarters for soldiers to consider. Madrid escalated this policy after the defeats began piling up from late 1628. Since they were unable to strike at the Dutch directly, Count Olivares back in Madrid wanted to lean more heavily on the Emperor for aid and to push back at the French, the main ally of the Dutch, wherever possible. But if the Emperor wanted to support Spain militarily, if he wanted that big declaration of war made by all of the Empire against the Dutch Republic, then first he'd have to wrest this declaration from the Imperial Diet, and then he would have to send Wallenstein to lead the armies against that stubborn Republic. And you can probably see the problems in these goals. It was twofold, really. First, Wallenstein was himself advising against widening the war in Germany by involving the Dutch, and he had intimated in the past to Ferdinand that he didn't have the manpower to fight in Germany, the Netherlands, and North Italy at the same time. The second problem was less easy to overcome. Ferdinand needed Wallenstein to command imperial soldiers, but quickly learned just how unpopular his generalissimo had become. Although he had granted their religion its new position of dominance, trounced all their enemies, and turned so many tides, the Catholic electors did not hesitate to turn against Wallenstein once they felt the generalissimo had served his purpose. It is significant the emperor didn't put up more of a fight for Wallenstein, just as it is important to explain why Wallenstein didn't fight for his own corner to be retained. Emperor Ferdinand arrived in Regensburg on the 19th of June, accompanied by an imposing retinue intended to demonstrate the power and glory of the Habsburg Holy Roman Emperor. If the other actors at Regensburg had expected Wallenstein simply to drop everything and accompany his emperor to Regensburg, though, they were to be disappointed. Although Wallenstein would have been well within his rights to attend, after all, he was Duke of two large and important territories, the Generalissimo had no interest in exposing himself to the venom which was doing the rounds in that city. I have had to make enemies of all the electors and princes, indeed everyone, on the Emperor's account, Wallenstein remarked. That I am hated in the Empire has happened simply because I have served the Emperor too well against the wishes of many. This estimation of public opinion was accurate, and Wallenstein was certainly careful to keep up to date through an information network that he had established as early as 1623. Wallenstein had more than enough to do without taking time out for a public appearance. He was also in constant pain, owing to poor health and frequent attacks of gout, which laid him low for several weeks at a time. Wallenstein chose to move his headquarters closer to Regensburg rather than attend in person, and he ensured that his representative, who he sent, was regularly in touch. 
Still, it's worth considering what might have happened if Wallenstein had attended in person, for the simple fact that not a single elector at Regensburg, not even Maximilian of Bavaria, the proprietor of the rumour mill, had ever even met him in person. Considering the kaleidoscope of interests at Regensburg, it's interesting to discern in the different parties where they stood on the Wallenstein question. In spite of his work in the name of the Edict of Restitution, however reluctantly, Wallenstein represented a less straightforwardly militant religious arm of the Emperor than did the forces of the Catholic League under Count Tilly. Since the conflict had begun in the Empire, both forces had remained separate, and Maximilian of Bavaria hoped to be rid of Wallenstein, combine the two forces, and resume his position of influence at Wallenstein's expense. The Protestant electors, Saxony and Brandenburg, didn't approve of the Catholicization of the Emperor's forces. Whatever ruin he had brought, Wallenstein was not the Catholic League, and the Elector of Brandenburg issued instructions to his representatives to the effect that they were not to participate in any schemes which might undermine Wallenstein's position. Saxon representatives were issued with similar instructions, with the added caveat that addressing the question of peace would make the maintenance of large armies in Germany irrelevant anyway. On the other hand, French representatives worked to undermine Wallenstein because his presence granted the Emperor far more freedom of action and power than Ferdinand would otherwise have had if Maximilian of Bavaria had been calling the shots, as he had been up to 1625. Unsurprisingly then, the Spanish supported Wallenstein for this very reason, because Madrid wanted the Emperor to have as free a hand as possible and as much independence as possible when it came to making war or peace. Both sides were keenly aware that Maximilian of Bavaria was prone to making agreements with the French, agreements which could be disastrous if the Catholic League army somehow were subdued through French diplomacy. The French were supported by the papacy, who wished to weaken Spanish influence in Italy, a fairly pressing aim considering the war that was then ongoing for Mantua. While those three parties possessed a stake in the negotiations, it was the Catholic electors led by Maximilian of Bavaria that controlled the proceedings. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. It all kicked off in the middle of July. But before we look at that, history friends, I want to talk to you about something... Well, I'm sure you've heard all this spiel before, but yeah, thanks so much for supporting this show on Patreon. And if you would like to get an hour of extra content every month and also access some pretty cool perks such as ebooks of all upcoming matchlock books, ebooks of all upcoming books in any form, really, and all upcoming audiobooks, all these kinds of different perks, plus merchandise, you know where to go. Patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. If you'd like a shout out like the one that Rebecca Eager got at the start of this show, you can get that as well. It's all detailed in the different tiers of support. It is thanks to Patreon that I'm able to actually do this podcast and pay for the PhD at the same time, let alone all the expenses that come with a new creative venture like a new historical fiction series, which, by the way, you may or may not be aware, Matchlock and the Embassy is the first installment in this historical fiction series set during the Thirty Years' War. I am very, very proud and excited to announce that over 400 sales have been recorded, nearly 450 in fact, since we first dropped the book in the middle of September. And I'm really quite proud of that because I came out of nowhere and no one knew my name in the historical fiction sphere. So this is really your guys' work, buying the book, talking about the book, talking up the book, and making sure my name gets out there so that more people will see it and then hopefully purchase it. But I am by no means resting on my laurels. The second instalment of Matchlock is on the way. It'll be here early in 2022. I had wanted it to be out before Christmas, but circumstances transpired to make that basically not happen. And if you're wondering about those circumstances, let's just say I'm working on something really exciting right now for patrons. A new series... Britain Goes to War. Now, Britain Goes to War is not a new series. You might have heard of it before. It's actually in the feed from about 2015 or 16 or so, but this will be a brand new series looking at the early 1860s and following Palmerston's last administration. I'm really excited about it because it lets me look at British politics and foreign policy from a new angle, and it ties in really well with my PhD research too, which is why I'm able to take the time to do it in the first place. You should know if you're wondering what it's all about. At the moment, I'm studying very intensely British relations with North America during the American Civil War and looking particularly at the Trent Affair and how close Britain and America came to their third war. If that sounds interesting to you, then by all means sign up for Patreon and look out for that series when it releases probably in the spring of next year sometime. This is all to say I have some really cool things planned, so if you're a patron or a listener or a reader or otherwise, thanks so much for supporting this show, for listening to this show, and everything else you guys do. I really appreciate it. If you'd like to do something for free, why not say hello and join the Facebook group, or why not review this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you review your shows. If you've bought Matchlock and the Embassy and you're enjoying it, that's great. A review on Amazon or Goodreads or anywhere else would really, really be appreciated. Okay, let's get back to the episode. On the 17th of July, 1630, these electors intimated to the Emperor that while questions of universal peace, a reckoning with Frederick V and the involvement in related conflicts were important, of more importance to them was Wallenstein. 
It was never more apparent than now that the electors blamed the Generalissimo for all the evils and ills that the war had caused. The spread of plague, the loss of life, the ruin of harvests, the terror of the soldiery, the destruction of the empire's infrastructure, these were consequences which Wallenstein had sought to avoid at all costs, since their spread made his job of maintaining so many soldiers a great deal more difficult. Emperor Ferdinand tried to appease them with vague promises about improving the organisation of the army, but the electors were not fooled. They returned on the 1st of August and delivered their list of complaints about Wallenstein in person, straight into the emperor's hands, no less. This was a striking gesture of their contempt for Wallenstein, a man who had propelled Emperor Ferdinand's powers to unimaginable heights. It should go without saying that Ferdinand had long been resilient to the idea of dismissal for several obvious reasons. Maintaining Wallenstein granted Habsburg power a monopoly in the German lands, and it enabled the emperor to intervene into several theatres at once. It also protected Ferdinand from the schemes of external powers, and thereby protected the Edict of Restitution. By 1630, the emperor had almost certainly become accustomed to having his own way in the military field, and aside from the shaky early months of the Bohemian Revolt, the conflict in Germany had resembled a straight line of Habsburg triumphs, all the way to Regensburg. Sacrificing Wallenstein would place this progress in jeopardy, because the army of the Catholic League would not answer directly to him, as Wallenstein had done. Both Maximilian of Bavaria and Count Tilly were perfectly dependable, and had established the first phase of the Habsburg military supremacy by 1625. But Wallenstein was guaranteed to fight for the status quo which he had created, because he had gained so much personally from it, and because of his personal contract of loyalty towards the Emperor and no one else. Against these considerable advantages, though, the Emperor had to be realistic. He knew from the last few years that Wallenstein had been transformed into a scapegoat. Rightly or wrongly, the Catholic electors blamed Wallenstein for the widening of the war and its increased costs, even though the Generalissimo had acted on the Emperor's orders the majority of the time. Sacrificing Wallenstein might grant the Emperor concessions over the war in North Italy and might wrest a declaration of war against the Dutch. However, it was clear that Ferdinand would get nowhere in any negotiations until he sacrificed him. It took him less than a fortnight to make the decision. On the 13th of August, 1630, the Emperor released Wallenstein from his service. The subject, who had brought his master so many glories and so much power, was now a free agent. With a few exceptions that we'll investigate below, Ferdinand got very little for his willingness to do away with his most valuable asset. No confirmation of his son as heir to the office of emperor was made, and no commitment from the electors regarding a war with the Dutch was provided. The task of leading the new Catholic League Imperial Army was to fall to the dependable Count Tilly, but even this veteran commander would be fighting an uphill battle. To appease those in attendance, the size of this army was reduced significantly, while the monies put up for the soldiers that Tilly did retain was far from sufficient. Faced with shortages in pay, you won't believe this, but Count Tilly would be forced to live off the land in Germany, with disastrous consequences for the following year. I thank God to be freed from the net. I am glad to my innermost soul about what they have decided in Regensburg, as a means that I can escape from this great labyrinth. This was how Wallenstein greeted the news of his dismissal on the 23rd of August. 
It was such a mild reaction that those in attendance at Regensburg were either astonished or convinced that it was disingenuous and that revenge was in the pipeline. They had long been vexed over the question of what Wallenstein would do once he had been dismissed. Would he lead his soldiers against Vienna? Would he switch sides? Would he join the Swedes? Such Machiavellian schemes were far outside the range of Wallenstein's character, not to mention his capabilities. Wallenstein was tired of campaigning and exhausted by the constant political battles. If he was resentful at the way he had been treated, this was more due to the fact that the Emperor hadn't fought harder for him and that his exploits hadn't spoken for themselves, rather than out of any deep-seated resentment at having lost the power of the command. Being the Emperor's instrument had netted him new titles and lands, but they'd also cost him great sums of money that Wallenstein was never going to get back. Wallenstein's pressing concern by mid-1630 was to somehow make ends meet by arranging for the necessary shipments of cash to reach the right people in time. He and his agents were drowning in debt, and the contributions which the soldiers were meant to levy from the people to make up the difference had dwindled considerably. Dismissal meant that it was incredibly unlikely the emperor would work in any way to repay his debts. This would be a task which Wallenstein himself would be responsible for, of course. He would have to draw upon his lands at Mecklenburg and Friedland and raise lines of credit based on these incomes to settle his debts. Severe though this mission was in late 1630, it was infinitely more impossible once the Swedes began their campaigns the following year in 1631. One of Gustavus Adolphus's most symbolic initial acts, when sufficiently powerful, was to reinstall the old Dukes of Mecklenburg, thus severing Wallenstein from one of his main areas of income. This added catastrophe on top of catastrophe, and effectively shattered Wallenstein's financial credit, leaving only his reputation behind. His personal banker committed suicide shortly after the Emperor dismissed him. But Wallenstein was not the only figure to be spurned by Regensburg. You might remember someone by the name of Frederick V, the dispossessed elector of the Palatinate. He was not allowed representation at the meeting at all. Ferdinand instead reissued the demands made at the Mühlhausen meeting of late 1627. For his part, Frederick became still more inflexible, likely due to the anger which had burned resiliently ever since Ferdinand had ignored what Frederick considered his most generous offers. Now he'd begun to style himself as the King of Bohemia once more, he allowed no concessions, and it's highly unlikely that Frederick's embassy would have made much of an impression on those assembled at Regensburg, even if it had been granted an audience. Indeed, the Winter King was old news by 1630. As if reflecting the fact that the conflict in Germany had reached a new phase and was teetering on the edge of a new abyss, the Palatine Crisis was only of minor concern to the princes at Regensburg. The more pressing issues which the crisis had since spawned were of more interest to them now. As Brennan Purcell put it, no progress was made towards a resolution of that tired controversy. Frederick would have to wait for the next phase of the war to begin before he would be in a position to dream of restitution. Regensburg didn't provide Ferdinand with the opportunity to extend the war into the Netherlands, but it did provide him with a platform where the Mantuan War could be settled in the Habsburg favour. The war in North Italy had been a mixed bag for the French and the Spanish, but both had begun to perceive it as an extension of their rivalry in Europe, rather than as an isolated campaign. Indeed, the heavy investment from the French and the Spanish meant that this was no sideshow. 
in early 1629, a French army had intervened directly, forcing Savoy out of the war and relieving the fortress of Casal in Montferrat. By late 1629, though, Mantua itself was under siege by the large column of imperial troops that Ferdinand had sent and that Wallenstein had obliged in sending. This army, under the command of Ambrogio Spignola, had to break off their siege of Mantua during the winter of 1629-30, but the spread of plague in that city made the second attempt far easier. This meant that by mid-July 1630, as everyone was settling down at Regensburg, it was known that Mantua was in the hands of the Emperor's troops. The loss of Mantua and the decision of the French candidate, the Duke of Nevers, to accept exile in the Papal States was a crushing blow for French pretensions in North Italy and was a particularly bitter blow considering the previous successes. The Duke of Savoy also had taken the opportunity to re-enter the war, which placed Casal once more at risk. That bastion of defence held out resolutely, but back in France, Cardinal Richelieu was facing an uphill battle. The situation was exacerbated by the illness of King Louis XIII, which effectively paralysed decision-making in France and granted new opportunities for Marie de Medici, the Queen Mother, and Richelieu's political adversary to gain ground at his expense. By the approach of autumn 1630, it was learned that the King of France had received the last rites and would be replaced by his brother Gaston as King, an event which would ruin Cardinal Richelieu's position and hand the reins of power to the Queen Mother's creatures. At one point it seemed like Richelieu was heading in the right direction. It seemed like France was destined to make a serious dent in Spanish prestige, but this series of unfortunate events seemed to suggest otherwise. Unsurprisingly, it all caused Richelieu profound anxiety, but it also meant that those French representatives in Regensburg, tasked with arriving at a peace treaty for Mantua, received no advice from their ill king. Ferdinand saw his chance to take advantage of the weak French position and end the war in North Italy before it could complicate additional Habsburg commitments. The Duke of Nevers would be confirmed as the Duke of Mantua and Montferrat if he would only surrender the fortress of Casal and Pinrolo to Spain, thereby neutering his ability to defend against future incursions, and France would have to renounce its intentions to make alliances with foreign potentates. These terms were encapsulated in the Treaty of Regensburg, and on the 13th of October 1630, you'll never believe this, the beleaguered, isolated French officials actually signed it. All that was required now was for the flailing French administration to ratify this treaty, and the emperor would have scored a considerable coup in North Italy at France's expense. France's vulnerable state in October 1630 seemed to render ratification a foregone conclusion. But, as all were to discover, Ferdinand's final success was not so easily achieved. Eventful though Regensburg had been, the meeting did not include the two Protestant electors to the north. Neither the Saxon nor the Brandenburg elector had travelled in person to Regensburg, as their peers had done. Instead, in September 1630, they were determined to host their own electoral meeting at the city of Leipzig. With the King of Sweden then in Pomerania, hosted in Stetten, the Leipzig Convention conjured an impression of division at a time when the Emperor desperately needed unity. It had the effect of casting an ominous shadow over all of Germany. Leipzig was attended by Protestant potentates of all sizes and creeds, a violation of the 
Edict of Restitution, which left only Lutheranism as a legal faith. But it was not a declaration of war against the Habsburgs. Indeed, it's important for us to appreciate just how desperately those assembled at Leipzig did not want to wage war, either in the name of Sweden or in the name of an alienated Protestant cause in Frederick V's name. Indeed, what most assembled at Leipzig truly wanted was the choice to remain neutral. Unfortunately for these figures, and as the name of my book on the Thirty Years' War, For God or the Devil, suggests, this choice was taken out of their hands once the King of Sweden landed and the narrative was altered along with him. Gustavus Adolphus's uncompromising stance towards the Edict of Restitution, the Emperor, and the restoration of Protestants meant that in time, all would be forced to choose between God or the Devil. For at least a little while though, Leipzig represented a chance for all frustrated and spurned Protestants in Germany to maintain dialogue with one another and develop some kind of scheme for the protection of their interests, be that military or diplomatic. The elector of Saxony was in talks with the elector of Mainz, a Catholic elector, with the aim of moderating the emperor's stance towards the edict at the top of the list of his goals. John George of Saxony hadn't done all that much up to this point, except for take advantage of Frederick V's difficulties, but here he rallied most of the Protestants together into a block so that they could more effectively apply pressure. But his mission was not and never had been to launch a holy war or to justify disobedience to the emperor. The principle of strength in numbers appealed to John George of Saxony, and thanks to his activities, Maximilian of Bavaria conceded early in 1631 that the Edict of Restitution could be eased, but much depended on the Emperor, of course, before these measures could proceed. Furthermore, John George's moderate policy was undermined by the burden which many of those assembled already had to bear because of the war. Wallenstein's dismissal in August 1630 had not removed the strain which his army placed on Germany, it had only reduced it. And yet, with the King of Sweden plainly intent on intervention, it was to be expected that this army now under Count Tilly would be increased once more, and the nightmare of previous years would be resurrected. Under these circumstances, those assembled at Leipzig from February 1631 began to vary in opinion. War against the Emperor was unacceptable now, but the recruitment of soldiers to defend their lands from rampaging armies and grant them more leverage... These were aims which not even John George of Saxony could disagree with. And so it was that in March 1631, the Leipzig Convention was elucidated by the Protestant imperial estates assembled at that city. It was a message to all Protestants of the Empire, as well as to the Emperor himself. It resembled a plea for clemency and mercy on the one hand, but a warning against future attacks on the other. It was also a call to action against additional foreign intervention in the Empire a message directed against none other than the King of Sweden, who wished to style himself as the saviour of Protestant German princes. Gustavus would have to wait a few months before the Emperor put his foot in it and granted him the opportunity to take up this banner with real gusto, but in the first few months of 1631, Gustavus bided his time and waited for the right moment to act. Meanwhile, the Protestants of the Empire, for so long beleaguered and trod on by the Emperor's policies, made their voices heard. They set out a long list of goals, saying, We attest before God and the world that we seek and wish with peace-loving hearts and souls nothing more than to isolate and resolve all defects thoroughly through amicable compromise, establish true trust as 
firm peace and mutual concordats, to observe that the fundamental basic laws and imperial laws do not oppress German freedoms, to leave the electors and the states with their authority, honours, dignity, privileges, immunities and laws and justice, and do not coerce or oppress anyone who lives according to law and justice, to end the gruesome disorder, oppression and violence, restore a general lasting secure peace, and finally put a stop to the lament, misery, desolation and destruction, and the terrible bloodshed. Their electoral graces, of Saxony and Brandenburg, have themselves decided from their peaceful hearts that if the amicable compromise is not made, the authority and dignity of the Holy Roman Empire will be endangered still further, and, God mercifully forbid, will be driven into the ground to the eternal shame and rebuke of the electors and the states. The foreign potentates will also interfere in the affair and bring misery, ruin and destruction to each estate, regardless of religion. While Leipzig was not a declaration against the emperor, it was a reflection upon his failure to include all electors at Regensburg and within his vision of a peaceful empire. The Protestants at Leipzig declared their intention to step forward in unison in the name of their freedoms and of the constitution, and in so doing displayed both bravery and a unitary purpose which had been sorely lacking since the beginning of the conflict. Ferdinand had moved individuals like John George of Saxony towards this policy following years of broken promises and harsh missteps, and now he would have to deal with the consequences of a divided Germany just as Sweden lurked and awaited the right opportunity to strike. It should be underlined that the Emperor provided Gustavus Adolphus with this opportunity. Without the Emperor's poor judgement in religious and political affairs, Germany would never have been so divided against itself or so vulnerable to exploitation by a foreign conqueror. Further bad news for the Habsburgs came from another theatre. Notwithstanding the initially impressive settlement over Italy, the Emperor Ferdinand was soon led to discover that these generous entreaties with France had become irrelevant. In November 1630, it transpired that King Louis XIII of France had exaggerated the severity of his illness, and upon inviting Cardinal Richelieu to his hunting residence for a private audience, the normally unassuming King of France outlined a scheme that he had evidently been developing for some time. It amounted to nothing less than a mortal strike against the Queen Mother and her favourites, and the re-establishment of Richelieu on firmer foundations than ever before. This whirlwind series of events, known as the Day of the Dupes, greatly empowered French foreign policy, and put to bed at long last the divisions which had plagued the realm since Henry IV's death in 1610. Within the first few months of 1631, Richelieu had repudiated the humiliating Treaty of Regensburg with the Emperor, and the war in North Italy began to swing back in favour of France. The war with the Dutch had drained Spain's ability to project its power in the peninsula, and at the same time, the Austrian Habsburgs were forced to pay attention to the Swedes, after having ignored the problem for so very long. The full extent of the disastrous Habsburg strategic miscalculation was now plain. After having sent over 50,000 imperial soldiers to North Italy, Habsburg forces in Germany had dwindled to an all-time low. In Leipzig, the Protestants of the Empire, led by the Saxon and Brandenburg example, had created an army of 40,000 men and had knit their members together into a defensive alliance by April 1631. 
In January of 1631, Franco-Swedish military cooperation had been formalised with the Treaty of Barvald, which committed France to sending Sweden's king vast sums of money in exchange for Sweden's promise to maintain an army of 40,000 in the empire. Even more troubling, in May 1631, the French and Bavarians signed a secret treaty of their own, the Treaty of Fontainebleau, demonstrating the wily Maximilian's estimation of which way the wind was blowing. Empowered by his king's scheme, Richelieu felt confident to ignore the Treaty of Regensburg, and Emperor Ferdinand could do nothing in response. Against these two forces of Swedish and Protestant Germans and the shaky Bavarians, the Emperor had far fewer options than he had before the Mantuan War and dismissal of Wallenstein deprived him of his greatest assets. The conference at Regensburg had represented a significant and critical failure for the Emperor, and must be considered something of a turning point in the narrative of the Thirty Years' War. Maximilian of Bavaria was dominant over Ferdinand's military policy, and Regensburg only served to alienate the Protestants in the north, just as a potential saviour was en route. Now, as before, the burden of the war would fall to Count Tilly, whose soldiers were underpaid and demoralised. That veteran commander helped facilitate the next phase of the Thirty Years' War. In the next episode, we'll change our focus and examine the situation in Sweden. How did Gustavus Adolphus arrive at the decision to intervene in Germany, and what preparations did he have to make before he made this decision? The answers may well surprise you, so I hope you'll join me next time to learn all about them. Until next time though, history friends, my name is Zach. This has been episode 47 of the 30 Years War. Thanks so much for listening to this show and supporting it. You're the best. Happy holidays. Wear a mask, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.